Okay, we uh, said we got started in chapter two last week. Um, Going to get started this morning. Uh, got through really kind of the first first four verses. Going to do like a little overview of that um, as we get started this morning. Um, and we see here that uh, verse one for this reason. And we look up to recognize that uh, as it ties back into chapter one, the latter part of chapter one, um, they're all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit eternal salvation. And he says, for this reason, and all the things, again, as he was talking about angels, and he's talking about, again, Jesus and his superiority over angels. He says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard believe what he's saying is what we've heard is the things that he's discussed and brought out so far so that we don't drift away from it. And we think about drifting. We talked a little bit about that, recognizing that, uh, you know, to drift is not something that we just see. That's just, we, we recognize it's impactful. It happens instantly. A lot of times when you think about drifting, um, maybe you've been in a boat or uh, you've been in a plane. Um, when I uh, got my private airplane rating. Uh, I can remember one of my cross-country legs. I wasn't paying attention to that triangle that I was trying to fly and let my instruments get away from me and my ground reckoning. And the next thing I know, my the wind is blowing me off course. And I really didn't even see it until it really was like a 50 miles off my course. Um, I know you're all glad that I wasn't your pilot. So... <laughs> Anyway, that, uh, that was quite an attention getter, especially when I'm dealing with fuel and those kind of things. But anyway, drifting can happen very, very, very slowly. It can, it's such a, and I guess what I want us to be more impressed with with this particular passage and just as we recognize it, when we see verse two, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It's, a, it's something that we could not even realize. Apostasy a lot of times even creeps into the church that way. You know, it's not like, you know, we, we, we walk in here this morning and we see the way, the things that we do, and then the next thing you know, you hear of a congregation who have women elders or women preachers. A lot of times that didn't just start overnight. That was things and people that were drifting away and going in a different direction. This writer is telling us that it's important that we give the most earnest heed and pay careful, close attention to Christ's words, again, due to his superiority, recognizing, you know, when we think about, you know, and looking at this particular situation, when we think about how much more we should heed that word spoken by Christ, you know, if you think back to the old law and you think about what these Christians would be, would be accustomed to, there were still penalties, there were still things that occurred even in that, during that period of time, that it was that those transgressions of disobedience received a reward, received penalties, received punishment. And, and, and for us to realize 
if that happened then and that happened under that law, how much more, how much greater is it when we think about this being confirmed, this great salvation that we have, if we neglect that? Um, and again, it goes through, as we see verse 3, spoken through the Lord. You know, think about Jesus being on the earth and the things that he did to proclaim and, and to preach and teach. And we think about those who heard, confirmed to us by those who heard. Think of the apostles. Think of John the Baptist. Think of those who recognized who he was. God also testifying. God, and it, you know, when you think about his situation, his position, it didn't, it really doesn't make any difference you know, who confirms it? If God confirmed it, that's it. That's the end of it. He testified with them both with signs and wonders. And you think about the signs. You think about those that, uh, the things that he did that would cause those to believe. And those, and again, utilizing those things, wonders, you know, not magic, but things that, uh, that happened that made people, you know, somebody raised from the dead and it was, it would cause amazement. It would, you know, it would just, it would make you wonder. It would be, in, you'd be struck in awe. And by various miracles and gifts in the Holy Spirit, again, according to his will. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I, I think a real, important, a, a real important section in this part of, uh, of Hebrews. And I think what we need to recognize as well is that there's not going to be an escape if we opt to neglect it, if we opt to, uh, to forget about it. Verses, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Uh, I'm going to just break it down for this particular, uh, in, in this particular uh, section. Verse 5 says, for he, did not subject, for he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you be concerned about him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things, under, in, all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Verse 9. But we also, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that the grace of God might taste death for everyone. And I want us to think about this morning with this particular section, I think, and, and, I, and I find this particular section a little difficult. Uh, and, and when I say that, there are, there are those that might have an interpretation of this that may be different than mine, but I think overall a conclusion we'll have when we get to the end of this chapter, we'll, we'll have this, I think, the same, the same conclusion. But I think the, the, you know, the interpretation, and again, you feel free to disagree with me on this, but I think when I, when, when I recognize this and go back to, to, uh, to verse 5, he did not subject the angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And I think God had intended initially, and I'm going back as I think about creation. I think about uh, Adam and Eve, and, and when they were, they were, man was placed in the garden. Um, I think that he had intended at that point in time that we can read, and again, I'll go back in a few minutes to, to read 
and, and to, to prove my point, or again, for what I feel like is, is where I think this writer is going with this. Um, but uh, God had intended, I believe, to put the world to come uh, in subjection to man and, under, and, and not under subjection to angels. Uh, this world to come, I believe, refers to the time or the messianic, the, the, the Christ, the messianic uh, prophet that would come in the current time of salvations instituted by Christ. And again, that which should not be neglected uh, during the messianic age. Uh, now, I think what we, what we recognize and we look back here, and I'm going to turn right now just to kind of give you what I believe would be a stage and a basis for, for the things that I, that I am bringing out at this point. I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to look at verses 26 and uh, verses 26 through about verse 28. Um, and I think when we look back here, Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, more specifically, when I look at verse 28 and I think about what God and his intentions were for man at this point in time, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the sky, over everything that moves on the earth. And in, in, in verse 29, and I'll stop with that. Behold, I've, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth. Every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And I'm going to stop right there. But again, especially in verse 28, you see God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds, the sky, everything that moves on the earth. And I believe that in, in this process, you know, God had, it was, was somewhat an extent exalting man to be in a position to have dominion over this world. Over this world. But then if we look at the, the, the latter part, and I'm going to go back to Hebrews um, and, and to, to bring this home, at least that's my intention. And if you've been thoroughly confused, we'll stop here in a minute and, and I'll try to take you out of that tailspin, I hope. But uh, in, in going back to chapter 2, and when I think about uh, this section here where he says, uh, you know, we don't see, and let me read verse 8 again. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. And now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And I think in looking back over, you know, and I, I didn't go, and I'm, and I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'll let you do that, on, but I'm, I'm going to refer to it. You, you do this on your time, and hopefully you've read this. But he's going to go, and, and he's going to bring up... Psalms chapter 8, as he goes back to the old law to, to refer to this, Psalms 8, verse 4. And then if you look at, uh, that again, verse 6, verse 7, he's going to go to Psalms 8, verse 5. And then if you look here at uh, verse 8, Psalms 8, verse 6, he, uh, he goes here. And he shows, and I believe that, you know, there, there are those that believe this is talking about Christ 
But I think this is man, talking about mankind. Christ is going to be introduced, I believe, later, dealing with these same things, some of these same uh, characteristics, some of these same attributes. Um, but I think it's important that this writer is trying to get across the fact that at the beginning, man was supposed to be in a position to where he had dominion over the earth. He, he was supposed to be in that position. But yet when we see at the end of verse 8, what's troubling is it says, now we do not yet see all things put under him. And I believe because of man's rebellion, because of man's sin, it's, it, it, what we see is, is he lost that, so to speak, that dominion. He lost that exaltation that, that, that God had given him or initially wanted to give him uh, because of sin. It was that was restricted because of sin. Um, one writer says that I read that man is not complete, man is not in complete control of his environment because of sin. Again, looking back and, and then starting at Genesis 3, seeing where he, man, had, the fault, man had fallen. We are subject to disease and death from many sources that can overcome us. We have lost the glory and honor that God originally planned for us, lost it due to sin. God planned dominion and glory. If man had not sinned, he would have had that dominion and that glory, uh, but that was lost because of sin. Now, I think as, as he moves on, I'm going to stop right there. Is there anybody that has any comments or questions with regard to that particular section uh, that I'm going to bring in, verse 9? Okay. Um, I think in, in, in looking at this, when we see verse 8 in the way it does, verse 8 ends, you know, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, subjected to man, mankind. Uh, in, con in contrast to what was lost, the end of verse 8, which I think that's what he, I believe he's, the writer brings out here, is that the honor that was held before the fall of man is now what? How does it regain? Man lost that. How is it regained? Through Christ. That's right, through Christ. Um, it shows again, and, and, and we'll look here at verse 9, and I think another thing that we see, and this is why I believe, you know, I looked at a lot of different, I looked at a lot of different commentaries on that particular section from 5 through 8, and a lot, there were a lot of varying thoughts processes on, on that, and a lot of writings that are different uh, with regard to this area. Some think that's related, is all speaking about Christ, and the reason I, I struggle with that is because when you see that, again, that last part of, of verse 8, where he says, we don't yet see all things subjected to man. We don't see all things. The reason I can't put my mind around that being Christ is because of the fact I can't see anything that's not under Christ. How would anything not be under Christ? It would be, you know, and that's why I believe that because of man's sin, because of what he had done, his rebellion uh, against what God had asked him to do initially back during the time in the garden, um, he lost that. And now, what's, what's verse 9 begin with? In, in my, particular, uh, my particular Bible, it begins with, but, but, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. And I think this is where Jesus is introduced. We see, but, but now we see Jesus. And again, it's, 
as, as we see, you know, this is man's, man is now, his honor, his, his glory, so to speak, is, is regained through Jesus Christ. Shows the superiority over angels in his humanity and his death. Jesus, who became flesh, lower than the angels, who suffered and died for man, became the complete fulfillment. Again, looking at these passages in Psalm chapter 8, of Psalm chapter 8, 4 through 6, thus crowned with glory and honor. I think when we see him for a little while, verse 9, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. How was Jesus... We talked about Jesus being superior, superior to angels. How was he made lower than them? How would that make sense? He, um, he was made lower than the angels. When he became a human, he became lower than the angels. Okay. What else? When we think about what Christ did, and it says became lower, again, my version says a little lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, but it was like for a time. Was it like forever? It was a period of time, and this is what I believe when we see this. I think, you know, Jesus suffered and died so that by God's grace, when we, when we recognize that, he could pay that penalty. He could do these things to, uh, that were required by all sinners. You know, Romans 6.23, all sinned. And we, when, when we recognize that uh, Jesus, when he became and came to the earth, became human, became flesh, that is where, again, he was even more in, 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 superior to, uh, to angels. Um, I'm going, to, I'm going to move ahead here to verse 10. Um, it was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And I'm going to stop right there. But when, when we think about this, he continues that thought through verse through verse 9, and we look at is, is God's plan, it was fitting for him. When you think about something being fitting, what comes to your mind if, it's, if something's fitting? Okay, appropriate. And we think about that to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What did Jesus have to do in order to fulfill what God expected of him? Suffer, come to this earth, take on, form, take on flesh, become human, become man, and then he's perfected salvation. The author of salvation is perfected through sufferings. So I think about when we think about the sufferings of Christ made his qualifications to bring men to glory complete. It was, it was perfect. Only through his suffering of death was he completely fitting to bring salvation. He's the only perfect sacrifice. And again, 
That would make him superior to everything we've talked about. I think this section here, as we move in to verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 11, says, for he who sanctifies those who are sanctified. Who is he that sanctifies? Jesus. Who is those who are sanctified? Us. That's right. Christians. So what's it say here? The, re- the writer brings out the fact that Jesus, again, coming in the form of flesh, humanity, coming to the earth and living his life here, both he who sanctifies those who are sanctified are all from one Father. So what's the point here when he says he's not ashamed to call them brethren? Okay. Um, I, think, I think whenever, when I, when I think about this, um, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Um, and again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to point here to look at to, to look at three different sections right here of the old law where he's going to bring this out. And he says, you know, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So when we look at Psalms 22, 22, again, this is referring to, you know, I will proclaim your name to my brother. Again, he's bringing out the point that here it is even back then talking about Jesus, talking about his brethren, that's the point I think that he's making here. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. But again, for this reason, he's showing that when he has this same thing as we do, Jesus and Christians, he then could recognize he wasn't ashamed to call them brethren. I think when you look at verse 13 and look at Isaiah 18 verse 7, I'll put my trust in him. Well, it's just like Jesus puts his trust in who? He puts his trust in God. While he was here on the earth, he put his trust in God, just like Christians do, just like we would do with a father. We would put our trust, and I think that's what he's bringing out here um, in this particular section. And again, looking at uh, Isaiah 18, 18, 8, verse 18, the same kind of thing with, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Again, talking about children, talking about uh, you know, as, as he looks and, and, and recognizes because he's become flesh and he has this, he has this in common. Um, just like children of God put their trust in the Father. Children, you know, be making them brethren. We're, we become flesh with one another. It's, that's, I think, what this writer is trying to say with regard to Christ. Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, verse 14 He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, this this little next section here that he talks about, and seeing that what the writer brings out is that Jesus uh, also partook of the same with regard to flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had power of death. Christ willingly took on the same nature of man, suffered as man, died as a man. Christ conquered death, therefore destroying him, the devil, 
who had power of death. So when we think about why, why, is, that, why is that important? Why is, it, why is that important? Is for him to have conquered death over Satan. I can't, I can't hear. Leanne, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Um, in the resurrection, we're going to rise like he did from the dead. So that's why, that's part of the reason why it's, it's, it's important for him to conquer death. Okay. There's something else I'm looking for here. Just thinking about this particular thought, when we think about Jesus, that through death might render powerless Satan be, who had the power of death. That's right. That's right. And, and I appreciate that. I think when we, when we recognize what Jesus had to do, we recognize that because of his, his death, that he was able to make, render Satan powerful. Let's, let's think back and recognize it from this standpoint as well. When we think about Christ destroying Satan's power of death over man, what, when that happened, what happened to man? What happened to man? He, something actually, he was under something before that happened. They were freed. They were freed. They were freed from bondage. And you know, we, when we think about man no longer being in bondage to death, that's not true. Of it. You know, when we think about the angels, he's, as he continues to, to look at the superiority and the contrast between Christ and the and angels, that's not true of any angel. But we think of Christ, through Christ, we're released from the bondage of sin. That's not happening through angels. That's, that is not at all what would have happened. But yet the, the, those that, the audience that this writer speak, is speaking to would have put angels in those type of, I guess, elevate them into those particular categories to where they were, they were special. They were under God. And, and, and Jesus was un, were under angels in a, in, a, in a lot of the Jewish minds. Through Christ, we're released from the bondage of sin. If you're held by the bondage of sin, you should fear death. Think, think about that for a minute. If we've been released as Christians, but if you sin and you live in sin... Do you still have that release of bondage? And I'm going to choose my words here. Do you still have that release of bondage of sin if you live in sin? I heard no. That's right. We, you know, if, if we return, we have that. Jesus, for all mankind, opened that door. Jesus gave us that capability to where we could have that bondage of sin. Like Nate said, we could be freed. But if we sin, we still fall back into that. Where we could still be in a position to where we're, sin is holding us, holding us captive. It's holding us in bondage. And then what happens if we die? 
Again, here it is. You see, if the Christian, if the Christian recognizes that you've been released from the bondage of sin, should there be that fear of death? There was prior to Christ. Okay. Okay. That's right. That's right. Any comments or questions? As far as the insufficiency of the old covenant, the old offering of sacrifices, if this is speaking to some of the same things here, where the blood of bulls and goats were not able to perfect us and not truly able under the old law to eternally remove those sins, if this perfect sacrifice also removes death in that sense. You know, uh, you know we know the passages that talk about Christ's sacrifice retroactively removing the sins from the beginning of time to the end of time. Uh, and so I wonder if that's part of it also. Yeah. Any other comments? So verse 16, it says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. And again, I think just looking at Jesus and what he does and what, again, characteristics, uh, his nature and what he does. It's not that he gives aid to angels, but he does give aid to the sin of Abraham, to mankind. Uh, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all, thing, in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people for since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. Again, looking back here at, at verse 16, Jesus you know, introduced as, you know, as a high priest, as, as their new high priest. And in order for Christ to be a merciful, faithful high priest, he had to endure the same sufferings of man so that he could sympathize with man. When you think about, again, looking at Jesus coming from heaven, here's God. He's our mediator from, from Jesus to, to God. He mediates for us. But again, looking at him from the aspect of, of, of mankind, looking at him as, as flesh, um, as the high priest offered atonements for the sin of man, Christ offered himself as the atonement, their propitiation. What's propitiation mean? What did Christ do if he was the propitiation? I threw the word a little bit, one word in there. What else would we see that that would have done? What did he do with respect to God? The anger of God. That's right. Repeases the anger of God. What should have happened? What should have happened to us? Yeah. Should have been destroyed. We, we, we sinned. And Jesus, as that high priest, offered that atonement, offered that appeasement, offered the appeasing sacrifice 
that God could, and, I, and I, I'm going to just say, maybe put at bay his anger. You know, sin angers God. Christ offered himself as that atonement and the only one. Here's the, I think, the also important thing for us to recognize here with this is he is the only one who could appease that. He's the only one who could satisfy that. Verse 17, he had to be made like the brethren in all things so that he might become merciful, faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make the propitiation of the sins of the people. For since in verse 18, he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What is he able to do when we think about that? Christ becoming flesh God, deity, what is it we recognize when see as a benefit to us? What is Christ able to do? To be a human, he, uh, he experienced sorrow like we did. He experienced joy like we did. experienced pain like we did. And he understands, so when we pray to him and we ask for forgiveness or for understanding of something, he understands where we're coming from because he was us. That one time. Okay. I think we're going to see more of this as we get into chapter 4, chapter 5. Um, thinking of chapter 4 and verse 15, for we have a high priest and I'm getting ahead of myself uh, here another week or two. We have, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Think uh, again, just as this, again, this, this writer continues to build upon the superiority of Christ. And again, Looking at this book of exaltation, looking at this book of exhortation to build these brethren, to build these Christian, these 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 Christians um, up, to keep them from drifting, to keep them from going astray. I think it's important that we recognize that he tells them, you know, that he himself was tempted just like you are, and he suffered. But he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Angels couldn't do that. Angels, angels didn't do what he's able to do because of his suffering. I think, you know, again, Leland brought, out some, brought us some really good lessons uh, last year uh, with regard to angels. And, you know, a lot of things in there, they're still, it's a, I think it's a mystery at times. But I know, and, and we talked about this a little bit last week, you know, they're involved in, they're involved in something and helping those who are trying to achieve salvation. What they're doing and what they do behind the scenes or what they do literally in our lives, I'm not sure what that's all about. But again, I think we're, we see the superiority that this writer wants to make that Jesus in all aspects is, is superior hands down. 
One of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do, I had it in chapter one, and I don't know if I got that slide out to you, but one of the things I think it's important, Hebrews is, is I believe it's the only book that really has a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of the Old Testament references and uh, the things that, again, he goes back to use those, goes back to use these various uh, prophecies, goes back to Psalms, goes back to Isaiah, goes back to these prophets and goes to the things that they would understand that would mean something to them. So as he utilizes this and we see in, you know, here's the Old Testament in chapter 2 of Hebrews. And we look at verses 6 and 8, Psalms 8, 4 through 6. Uh, and, I, and I've got in chapter 1, but that should be chapter 2. Verse 12 of chapter 2, Psalms 22, 22. Verse 13, 2 Samuel 23, 3. Psalms 18, verse 2. And again, verse 13 of this book has Isaiah 18, verse 8. And again, you see just in this chapter, those particular Old Testament references, Old Law references that he brings out so that he again can provide confirmation and things that they would understand and that they could easily be drawn in as he makes these different comparisons and he makes these different uh, contrasts. It's important that they would see this. Any questions or comments over chapter 2? Yes, sir. about Jesus being tempted in all things as we, but without sin. If he had even yielded to temptation a single time, he wouldn't be able to help us because he'd have his own sin he'd have to repent of. That's right. It's an amazing thing that, 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 we, that we've received because of that. Absolutely. Good, good point. Any other comments? Carrie. I'll get, you, I'll get you staged here. I think this is totally profound teaching. If you look back when this book was written, if you can believe the authorship of it, when it was written in 68 years after Christ died, and he's teaching this to the Jews that have been Jews for centuries. And this is totally profound to them. And it totally shows that he's a much better sacrifice than their sacrifice of bulls and goats. Good point. Hey, Phil, I was just going to make a comment that when you look, go back to verse 8, 9, and following, there's this contrast between suffering and being crowned with glory. So Jesus is suffering, whether you're thinking of just coming to earth, leaving heaven, coming to earth, and suffering as a man, or if you even look at his death and his crucifixion as the suffering. That suffering, through that suffering, he was able to be crowned with glory. When you connect it back to Romans 8, there's this concept of the suffering of Christ. And that suffering, and through that glory, we are fellow heirs. And we, too, through our suffering, can be crowned with glory. So I, I, I think, you know, when you're looking, when you're considering the audience of who Hebrews is being written to, Embedded in that is this um, underlying thought that stay with, stay with it, you know, suffer because the end you will be glorified. 
Good point. Appreciate that. Any other comments? Okay. Doors are opening. And chapter three was on the horizon. Now it's not. So I'm going to shut it down right here. Thank you for your comments and for all your good, uh, your, your attention. I appreciate it very much.